I mean, I think everyone would agree you probably shouldn't recommend drugs to people if you don't know what their effects are going to be. But, you know, the horse has left the barn on that. What do you think this means going forward? Well, look, when pregnant and lactating women had concerns and they had questions, the right answer was, we don't know. Not just right. take That's it and right. stop asking questions. The, the research is catching up now. First of all, the mRNA does not stay in the muscular area. It's injected intramuscular. This research confirms it does not stay in the place where it's injected. Now, normally there are biodistribution studies that evaluate where these nanoparticles are carried in lipid carriers throughout the body and in excretions as well. But those studies were limited. They were skipped. Many of the findings that were done in the limited studies were concerning. There was no follow-up. We know this from the FOIA documents. Many experts I talked to were concerned about interactions with other child vaccines. Kids get a lot of vaccines before they're six months of age. And when you give a vaccine to a a woman who's pregnant, it causes general body inflammation. And that's well known to be deleterious in pregnancy. General body inflammation has risks in pregnancy. That's been well studied. If a woman has some inflammation from periodontal inflammation of their right. gums, then that is associated with preterm labor. Why do we think this inflammation has no downsides? If they're already immune, what are we doing anyway? And sometimes the women have lymphadenopathy which means they can't do engage in breastfeeding when they're trying to lactate. And I think what's interesting is the authors of this study spun it to say that the vaccine is safe among lactating women. They call them lactating individuals in the study. They studied 11 women, only looked for the mRNA 48 hours later, and then concluded that it's safe in women. You can't make that conclusion from this study. In my opinion, the editors told the authors of the paper, this is how you should conclude. I've had that experience with writing for the top medical journals. I've published hundreds of peer review articles out of Johns Hopkins, and the editors will often say, you need to write it this way, and then you're in a dilemma. Do you use the profile of the journal to publish the study, or do you retract it over a dispute because a couple editors have a lot of power and control? The FBI seems to be showing up at the homes of a lot of different people recently. Will anyone ever be ha held accountable for this? I mean, the, it seems like some of these risks were known. You just said inflammation is a well-known risk for children in utero. Will anyone be held accountable? Yeah, a, little, a lot of humility would have gone a long way in just being yeah. honest with people about what we don't know. And these are the lowest risk people on earth. They're women, they're in their 20s, 30s, teens. These are not people who are high risk where the vaccine has maybe some benefits that you could counter with the risks. That's not the case, it appears, in women who already had COVID and are low risk anyway. Damn, it's so distressing. Thank you for your honesty, Dr. Marty McCary. Appreciate it. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update, where we talk about science, real science, that examines the marketing of new drugs, questions headlines that say they are safe and effective, when the data leads good doctors, good researchers to conclude perhaps just the opposite. Well, that's what you just heard from a fine doctor at Johns Hopkins. And you're going to hear more in a minute from one of the leading experts in reproductive health, Dr. James Thorpe, who is with our doctors, Pierre Corey and Paul Marek, to tell you the truth about what we are learning about troubling side effects of the mRNA vaccines. This is especially useful right now as the latest batch of boosters is being pushed on the public as totally safe, totally effective, and necessary for avoiding deadly COVID-19 this fall and winter. 
I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm not a doctor. I'm just creative director of this alliance. We're going to hear what the top clinicians, the doctors who actually treat patients, think of all of this. And we have four nurses answering questions you have in Q&A right now and all throughout the program. But I'll be back to bring more of your questions to the doctors right here on the screen after they discuss the latest findings on mRNA injected into the body. Remember when we were all told it would stay, you know, right in the arm? Pierre, Paul, what happened to that? Yeah, um, they were lies. Moved. Yes. I mean, listen, you know, our organization, right, we've really tried to guide um, treatment, uh, learn as much as we could about COVID, give people agencies over, over their health. Um, but a lot of the work that we've had to do, and we didn't think we'd have to do that, is really pointing out the scientific fraud and the lies and to support this vaccine campaign and to suppress uh, early treatment options. And, uh, you know, at this point, we figured out how to treat COVID. Uh, we are figuring out how to treat long haul and, and vaccine injury. Um, but, you know, since, quote unquote, COVID is over, you know, the, the evidence of fraud and suppression of really important data that people needed and physicians needed to, to guide healthcare is coming out. And, and you're getting to see now um, the, the absurdity and, and really the calamity that has resulted from, from the suppressed and distorted science. You know, I, I want to say one thing before bringing Jim on, you know, uh, Paul, Marty McCarry, you know, he talked about what we've been talking a lot about lately, about the editors, Right. Yeah. So I want you to write conclusions in certain ways and they they totally manipulate how science is presented. Yeah. So I found that particularly interesting because that's actually what happens. And I've had that happen to myself that you put in this position where the, the editors rewrite your paper and they hold you hostage because you either that you either have it rewritten by them with their wording the way they want to, or they reject the paper. Yep. Because he's absolutely correct. The conclusion of that paper was absolutely absurd. And it's clear that the journal editors were manipulating the, the content. And I don't think that physicians realize that, that journal editors hold the authors hostage so that the message is what they wanted to be portrayed. And that's often why there's a association between the findings of the study and a conclusion, because the editors often rewrite the paper. Yep. How many of the doctors also that are doing the practice, that are out there working so hard, actually have time to read beyond the headlines and just the brief summary of all of this? Well, that that's, that's clear that the vast majority don't. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, even those of us who will read a, a study very closely and critically, um, there are many levels to it. And I'm going to bring up the work of Alexandros Marinos. If you see what he does when he looks at studies, I mean, he looks at the protocols that were registered on clinicaltrials.gov of the design of the study. And then he sees how the study was con conducted and he's finding just numerous manipulations. And so even at the level that we see it, I mean, to really see how much it's being uh, curated and manipulated. Uh, I mean, it's 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 really it's it's really sad. You know, Paul and I have had careers, and I don't think we knew we we never knew the extent and level of control and corruption of how science is presented. It's it's um it, it's it's very sad, and and we're at new we're at new places in our career and as physicians, and 
uh, like Paul and I have been talking about, we don't know what to believe anymore because uh, information is being completely manipulated in all spheres on almost all topics. And we're most comfortable in calling out the fraud and the, the manipulations in science, but um, it, it's happening across lots of issues. And it, it, it's sad. I mean, we're, we're in a world where we can't, we don't have a functioning press and we can't really freely exchange accurate information. It, it's, it's, it's one person's version of the facts and the others and, and, who knows which is more accurate? It's 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 just it's really depressing. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, yes, is you know we've spoken about the agencies, the alphabet agencies being captured, but we don't speak enough about the medical journals being captured. They equally as captured and equally as manipulative and equally as dishonest and uh, perpetuate these lies. And the major medical journals, we call them out: JAMA, Lancet. New England Journal are equally responsible. Well, let's let's bring Jim on because I want to I want to talk to Jim about this because the the data that he's expert at, um, we know that's been censored, but there's been a few papers that have come out that's showing some truth that doesn't generate headlines. Um, but that's why we have Jim on to talk to us about how important uh, that this data is and and how important it is for for really. Uh, women and really everybody in the country to to understand. Uh, we we need to understand these medical interventions and therapies, and the journals are not allowing us to do that. The media isn't. Jim, what do you have to say to that? Amen. I, I think <laughs> that what you have touched on is extraordinarily concerning. You know, it brings to mind the flagrant fraud is unbelievable, especially in the reproductive toxicology studies that were absolutely mandatory to be rolled out. And now we have this uh, Miss uh, Sasha Alexandra uh, Latipova who comes out and, and she's been in the pharmaceutical industry for 30 years. She's brilliant. And she has data showing the reproductive toxicology studies in we saw rats and mice. And I've seen them with my own eyes. Uh, she uh, brought them out and they cause massive skeletal dysplastic damages in the developing fetuses of the rats, the dams. So it, it's, it's, and they covered it all up. It was a huge proportion. And, and I'll show you some pictures of that uh, in, in my presentation, but it's that kind. And then they published some of the study totally devoid. They just extricated it from the, and this is, this is tantamount to third degree murder because you don't roll a vaccine out and push it on every pregnant woman. Uh, it's not a vaccine, we all know that. It's a investigational genetic treatment. Heretofore, never ever been, no precedent for that in, in the world history. This is the greatest fraud, the greatest obstetrical disaster known to all of humanity. You're in it. And, and that's really true. Like when you talk about the fraud, like they saw concerning signals even before they got to testing on humans. And they rushed the testing on humans. We now know from the, you know, uh, Brooke Jackson, the Pfizer whistleblower, what a what a absolute chaos those trials were. They weren't following people closely. Uh, we don't really know the true adverse effects. When you see the 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 uh, Pfizer data that that the judge ordered to be released, you look through there, and it's just horrible. The way they categorize adverse effects, they just bury unpleasant data. And and so what gets presented in these journals, safe and effective. You know, no adverse effects that are concerning. And 
And, and, and then you have legions of public health and agency officials encouraging pregnant women to get vaccinated when there were no pregnant women in the trials. I mean, Jim, you're, you're an obstetrician gynecologist. I, I'm a pulmonologist and intensivist. Whenever you had a pregnant woman on our side, because we're not, we always get really nervous around pregnant women. It's like all of the medicines we use, we had so much caution because there's really nothing, very few medicines that are proven safe in pregnant women because they're not tested in pregnant women. Yet you had a global campaign of vaccination in which you encouraged pregnant women to get vaccinated with an experimental therapy with concerning reproductive toxicology data and no clinical trials data. Yeah, you know, you're making a terrible misassumption. Your assumption is that pharmaceutical companies and their sponsors are actually interested in promoting the health and well-being of humanity. I mean, I'm so lo- sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I Yeah, well, have you lost it? Because I, we know that's not what their goal is. Their, their, their business model is fraud, F-R-A-U-D, and their, their model is to sell something even if it harms and kills people. That's what they've been doing, and that's what they do. Yeah. So, you know what? We have to just talk. You know, we have to deal with the truth. None of the pharmaceutical companies are interested in the well-being and health of humanity. They have one interest and one interest only is to make money. We know this from all the cases that have come to trial and they've been found guilty of fraud because that's what they do. So we need to stop pretending that Big Pharma and their supporters are interested in the health of humanity. But it's just a fault. Paul, here's the, but and and I agree. You know, when you when you go down the root cause, like so, Jim's bringing up like early reproductive toxicology data that was ignored and dismissed. Of, co- of course, the pharmaceutical companies are going to do that, right? And even the regulators. Then you have the trials, which were totally fraudulently and misrepresented. But the the then you have the vaccine rollout and the instant ignoring dismissal and suppression of such concerning data. I mean, listen, I still remember being in Houston, Paul, with with Chris Martinson and and the group in January 9th of 2021, or maybe it was January 15th. And Chris was like, look at VAERS. I mean, it was exploding in the first weeks. I mean, you, you saw untold amount of adverse effects, yet it's been consistently and roundly ignored around the world. So now, now you're talking outside of pharma, healthcare leaders, agencies, media. I mean, media, major media does not cover VAERS. There's no critical uh, examination of the data. And anyway, we could probably do this for hours. Let, let's let's kind of, um, we have James Thorpe. James, can you um, introduce yourself real quick to our, our, although I'm sure our audience knows you already, but can you just introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Jim Thorpe. I'm a board certified obstetrician, gynecologist, and maternal fetal medicine, uh, boarded in both. Uh, amazingly so, I have my credentials haven't been ripped away yet. Um, and I've been practicing high-risk obstetrics for over 43 years. Um, I have my pulse, uh, my fingertips on the pulse of obstetrical outcomes. I'm extraordinarily busy. I'm an extraordinarily busy clinician. I'm 69 years old. I'm seeing on track to see 9,000 high-risk OB patients this year. 
I know what's going on. I, I have a good idea, probably better, I would say certainly more than any other maternal fetal medicine doc in the country uh, in terms of uh, my publications on COVID-19, my intense research on COVID-19 and my clinical experience. So um, that's who I am. Uh, and I'm not an anti-vaxxer, uh, I, uh, apologetically so. I, my, I pushed vaccines uh, uh, my whole career up until about 10 years ago when I was uh, enlightened uh, and got very interested in the works of RFK Jr., uh, Counselor Kennedy, and, and also uh, Dr. Andy Wakefield. So, um, but I'm, thank you so much, uh, Betsy Ashton, Pierre, Paul, Kelly, Christina, uh, an amazing team you all have assembled. Thanks. So I just want to say something here because some people may not remember. I'm an old reporter. Back in the 1970s, I was in Washington, and that was when this is almost dreaming now, but that was when. We in the press, the fourth estate, were monitoring government because we wanted to make sure that all of those agencies that were set up were working for the people. I was a consumer reporter checking to make sure that they were really checking on the, the, the corporations, the big businesses that they were supposed to be monitoring. Whatever uh, happened? Whatever happened to that? And we got excited and reported anytime anybody from those corporations tried to take over the agencies and control things and throw out all of the regulations that yeah. were there to make sure the people were protected. Yeah. Well, the, 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 what happened? The, the press, the press got captured, you know, along with the agencies. That's, that's all you can say. So Jim, do you have, um, you have some slides that, uh, you want to present us? Cause I, 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 we know that you're working really hard your research and you're getting data. And, you know, with that, uh, you know, with that new report showing the mRNA and breast milk, you know, there's renewed attention, uh, you know, we're trying to ramp up the pressure on, on, on the really just the absolute toxicity and lethality of these. Uh, I'm not supposed to call them vaccines. I'm just going to call them injections. Um, and, and so please enlighten us. Thank, thank you very much, Pierre. I'm gonna share my screen if that's okay. Sure. Well, again, thank you very much. And um, I just really appreciate being here and really looking forward to the FLCCC meeting in Orlando, which is, uh, gosh, 10 days away. Very, very exciting. Uh, thank you for the invitation there. This is the greatest disaster in the history of obstetrics. This is the greatest delusion, worldwide delusion in world history. Well, I don't have any conflicts of interest. It's interesting listening to um, two incredible physicians that I have such enormous respect for, um, Paul Merrick and Pierre Corey. Uh, they're heroes and save so many millions of lives around this world with just their truth in. And, and I really, really appreciate this opportunity. You know, they don't have any conflicts of interest. Everywhere they speak, every paper they write, they have to put out conflicts of interest. And I guarantee you they don't have any. And I guarantee you I don't have any. But what about the journals? What about the New England Journal of Medicine? What, they're, they're owned by the pharmaceutical companies. 
these most of these articles are ghost written by Pfizer. Um, and, and then the other thing, let's step up to the 60,000 foot level. Okay, come on, let's be honest. This is real data. The FDA, our government is corrupted at the highest level. Prove it, Thorpe. Okay, check me out. 46% of the operating budgets of the CDC and the FDA are gained by vaccine pharmaceutical proceeds by vaccine, by the pharmaceutical companies, and also by patents on vaccines, which they own and they're receiving royalties. That is the most egregious violation of ethical standards I've ever met in my life. How about the 21 advisors, including the venerable or the infamous um, editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, Eric Rubin, and the 20 other advisors, how about Tommy Shimabakuro, the lead article of the fraudulent New England Journal of Medicine article that pushed the vaccine in pregnancy? Where there are conflicts of interest? Do they have conflicts of interest? I, I'm, I, do your own due diligence. History will not prove me wrong. I will predict uh, at the final end of the day when we have all the data, all those 21 advisors I suspect will prove to have major conflicts of interest. Um, you, you know how this is the CDC and the FDA when they are on their knees bowing to the pharmaceutical companies. The pharmaceutical companies control them. You know Babcock uh, and Walensky, the heads of those agencies, admitted that they're hire, hiding data. I can prove to you that they are fraudulent. Their fraudulence has killed and maimed hundreds of millions around the world. That's a big allegation, Thorpe. Hmm. That is. You want the proof? All you have to do is go to Pfizer internal documents, Pfizer 5.3.6, and between mid-December 2020 and February 28th, there were uh, this less than 90 days, probably 70 days, there were 1,223 dead people after taking the vaccination. And that's on page seven, 1,223 enormous number of side effects. And then on page 12, the same document, there were 270 pregnant women. They had horrible rates of complications with the vaccine, massive uh, uh, miscarriage. I mean, we're talking upwards close to 80%. Um, Pierre knows this because he wrote the most brilliant, eloquent substack on this uh, two weeks back. But if that's not bad enough, 46% of those pregnant women that got a vaccine had complications after them. That's not safe. This, the federal government, the CDC and the FDA have that information and they've been sitting on it since February 28th, 2021. It's 18 months ago. So they have not released that information. They're killing and maiming millions of Americans, tens, uh, hundreds of million, probably, around the world. And they're responsible. This is the medical, uh, the industrial complex, which uh, is run around the world, and it's driven by our corporatism. So yep. I won't um, I, this is a brand new, I just uh, 
the first few slides, they're, they're just new data. Y'all knew Dr. Maholtra, uh, brilliant. Uh, I formally knighted him uh, for what that means, you know, since they won't give him knighthood over in the UK. But this is a guy that pushed the vaccine um, and um, brilliant young physician. And um, he was pushing on television all over. And he's had an academic metanoia and come out against it and said it should be completely eliminated worldwide. Um, this, is, this is the study, Dr. Nazi Hana, that Pierre and Paul uh, and Betsy were referring to. This is extraordinarily upsetting to me. Um, and I was interviewed on this uh, study and, and there was a piece in Epoch Times that um, Christiane Northrup and I um, and several others commented on. But the bottom line is this, as, as Paul, Dr. Paul pointed out, this is whitewash, it's horrible. And you have, and, and all of the strategies that he talked about are operant on this, um, on this study. You know, you can get a few clues, um, but one of the clues is, um, you know, that it's a paywall. So you can't, they put this stuff in here that they are saying that intact mRNA, not human mRNA, man-made mRNA from the vaccine gets into the breast milk in five of 11 subjects, in some of the subjects. And then they totally whitewash it saying, oh, it's like a drop of water in a swimming pool. I would feel perfectly safe. No, no, no. You have breached every ethical and scientific tradition of science known to man. I'm sorry. You're two years late, okay, Dr. Hannah? You're two years late. You don't come out with this ridiculous small study. You need a thousand times th that number you have, and it should have been done before any of the drug was rolled out. Now, here's the most concerning thing um, that, that I want to bring out to our audience um, and my colleagues watching. Now, you think about it. Here's what happens. Let's just go through the anatomy and the physiology uh, and some uh, organic chemistry here. Let's be make it real simple, okay? In my line of business, we've been using cell-free DNA for 20 years. We use it for diagnostic purposes. It's almost eliminated the necessity of putting a needle through mom's abdomen into the amniotic cavity and doing cultured cell karyotype chromosome harvesting. We can actually, there's cellular free fetal DNA that's circulating all the time, large amounts of it in mom's blood. It's shed from the decidual, shed from the placenta. So we can draw mom's blood and do a fetal karyotype. Well, because it's really easy, DNA, naked DNA in, in maternal blood, it's very stable. Totally the opposite with RNA. We have some very interesting diagnostic tests and risk priority uh, biological tests, uh, protonomics, uh, genomics, RNA genomics, DNA genomics, um, that we could use very effectively if we could look at RNA. We can't do that because it has a half-life of 20 minutes. 20 minutes, okay? It, it's not stable. 
So here's the deal. The pseudo-uridinated RNA, which is man-made and given in the vaccine, it doesn't stay in the arm. It immediately goes to the bloodstream. This is man-made RNA. Goes into the bloodstream. It apparently goes intracellular intact, potentially to every cell of the body. Now here's where something really bizarre happens, okay? It appears to be then excreted from cells using pinocytosis, as, as you may remember from your biochemistry. And that's just the, the kind of the, um, what happens is where a membrane will envelop that single strand mRNA, pseudouridinated mRNA, it will enclose it encapsulate it so it's a lipid um, fat soluble it goes right through the cell wall into the blood and then it circulates and then that mrna can circulate to the entire body and get in every cell proof yeah here it is you're seeing it look at the slides it goes into the memory the breast tissue of the uh the glands that produce human milk and they're shed in human milk by extracellular vesicles cause a pinocytosis from the cell. So then if that's not bad enough, it gets through and it stays in the breast milk and then it gets into the fetus. You say, well, will it be absorbed by, by the field? Well, I, I would say there's a strong chance it could be. And there is a precedent for this that T cells and cells that are in important T cells and immunoregulatory cells uh, that are in breast milk get absorbed through the gut intact. So it's very plausible that these children, um, first year of life, uh, first months of life who are breastfeeding then are contaminated with intact mRNA. Now, here's a question that I asked um, several experts, um, and, I, and I spoke with several today. You know, the question is then there's only a limited amount of mRNA in the vaccine. So, can the RNA, when it gets into the cell, it appears to be replicated? We know that it's trans, it can be transcribed into DNA, into the human genome. We have two studies of that. We have the Zhang study and we have the Alden study. So there's no doubt about it that it has the ability to be integrated permanently into the human DNA genome. Now, what we don't know is the viruses have an enzyme polymerase that can replicate the RNA, the single-stranded pseudo-uridinated man-made RNA that's in the cell. So is it replicated by the viral enzyme or does the mRNA code for a polymerase that can then replicate? I'm not aware that human beings have the polymerase uh, enzyme that can actually replicate DNA. I'm sorry, replicate RNA. Of course, we can replicate DNA, but we can't, to my knowledge, we don't have that polymerase uh, 
Now that's out of my wheelhouse, but that'd be a great question for Judy Mikovits or Robert Malone. Um, the experts I talked to today, I, I spoke with Ryan Cole. I just got off a conference with him and, and he wasn't aware. Um, he was uncertain about that as am I. But that, that's a great concern. So in this article, it's published and it's, it's definitely manipulated because of the language. You know, you don't go on and say, okay, this is fine. It's like a drop in a swimming pool. No, I'm sorry. The RNA can replicate millions of times, you know, possibly in mom and in the newborn. It's not okay. And this should have been done. It should have been mandated to be done eons before this was ever rolled out. This is a potential game changer of the human race. I'm not making any predictions, but it's possible. I'm not saying that's what's happening, but this is the incompetence, the it's irrefutable incompetence, lying, cheating people who are trying to, the only thing this is effective that I know of about is depopulation and inhibition of human reproduction. That's the only efficacy I know of this vaccine to date. Now, um, th this is yet another study. It's, this is, uh, the Hanaz study was not the only study. This was a year ago, the exact same findings. And look at the verbiage, you know, to uh, Paul Merrick, who is uh, such an uh, incredibly brilliant researcher and clinician. Um, I mean, he's right on. Look, look at minimal. You don't use that. Wait, you, that's, that's a subjective biasing, and it's in the title. And then when I go to try to open this up, well, you can't get to the body. It's, there's a paywall there. Again, part of their strategy. Um, and, and I think one of the things that came to my light uh, that I just learned, uh, embarrassingly so, but you'll know the ploys, uh, doctors and colleagues, the uk.gov, and I have it, and I can prove it to you, and it's there right now. You can go to a section in uk.gov, and it's been there for two years. They have a, it, it, at the end of a hundred pages of gobbledygook, worthless, trash, nothing. They put in a paragraph that says toxicology conclusions. This is not to be used in pregnant women or lactating women. Clear as day. Uh, people have argued and said, oh, they just put it in. No, they didn't just put it in there. And in fact, they came out and said, we've never changed our position. And they're right. You go use the Wayback Machine. It's been there and it's on there now. It is there. And why do they put that in? Because they're very smart. They're smarter than the FDA and the CDC. Because just like in Austria, where the government now realizes this is a very dangerous deal, it's a very dangerous intervention, and now they're pointing fingers at guess who? Right, the physicians. They deserve to be blamed. They deserve to be sued, um, both civil and criminal litigation because they do not have the data to give accurate informed consent. You need to know what's in the vaccine and you need to have clarity and transparency from the government and the CDC and the FDA. Walensky and Babcock 
already told you they're not being transparent. They admitted that. So you've, there's no physician in the United States of America that is given informed consent. If you're still recommending this drug, you better do an about face, doctor, because this was incumbent. The Austrian government is right. Doctor, it's your fault. The buck stops with you. You are responsible for doing your due diligence, like Dr. Merrick's done, like Dr. Corey's done, like I've done, like thousands of physicians have done around the world. You're not allowed to follow orders because you're too lazy to do your own due diligence. Your own due diligence is necessary to honor your your sacred relationship with the patient. And you've breached that. And if you're pushing that and you've had a problem, patients, sue your doctor. They deserve to be sued. Sue the doctor and I'll be your expert witness. This is not appropriate to be pushing an experimental drug in pregnancy when there's no safety data. Now, um, this is another recent article that just came out. Now, what are your clues to this article being extraordinarily biased? I know that Paul and Pierre have looked at this article and said, oh, I know. Yeah, it's, it's outlined in red in the title. You know, if as an editor or an institution or a journal, now they are demanding that people that are submitting experts like myself and like the doctors, um, the, um, Dr. Pierre and uh, Dr. Merrick, we're being told now to change our language. The American College of OBGYN is changing our language. We're not allowed to say pregnant women. Jim, can we stop and laugh? Please, it's uh, laugh or cry. Hey, or cry. It. I'd rather laugh because uh, I'm. Um, it's it's in incessant sadness. But literally, that's what they wrote: individuals, pregnant yeah. and lactating individuals. Yes, and that's what Shama Bakura did a year ago when he pushed the vaccine on the New England Journal of Medicine. Look at the title. And then you're not allowed to say breastfeeding mothers, it's chest feeding individuals. No, that, that don't, please don't tell me that. No, that's true. That's true. Chest, the Society chest of Maternal feeding Medicine, individuals? Yes. The Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, the American College of OBGYN, the American Board of Obstetrics, and they're pushing the transgender, uh, the mutilation, genital mutilation, breast mutilation in, in, in adolescence. That's tantamount to assault and battery. So Dr. Corey, Dr. Merrick, and I'm included. We are misinformation spreaders. Here's a, a spiritual principle, a fact of life that you can take to the bank. When any progressive accuses you of being whatever sin you want to say, misinformation spread or whatever, I 100% that's what they're doing because that's their tactic. That's right off their playbook. They commit this horrible fraud, this horrible misinformation that's killing hundreds of millions around the world. But yet it's Dr. Corey and Dr. Merrick and you know Dr. McCulloch and you know I could go on and on with all you heroes. It's you guys that are being put into the furnace and into the lion's den because you're trying to honor your physician patient relationship 
and tell the patients the truth. It's it's really disgusting. It's uh, you know there's so many flaws with this study, um, and and I'm embarrassed to say that one of the authors and I didn't put her name on there was one of my residents, but it's just um, anything in the JAMA. This is you can see here. This is JAMA Network. So this didn't get published in the main JAMA. So they farm it out to their uh, daughter journals, open source journals. This was just published. And um, look, look at the conflicts of interest that they did disclose. Remember the fact that I brought up in my last presentation here, um, and this is an unfortunate fact of life or human nature. True, 90% of investigators or researchers in medicine or in anywhere, engineering, any other field, will always side with whoever is funding their study. It's very sad, but it's a fact. And there's lots of data to show that. So, you know, this is really, really serious. And this is one reason, yeah, I, I pushed vaccines earlier in my career. I'm not a va vaccinator, but I'll tell you what, I published, um, you know, not as much as these brilliant doctors in front of me, but I, I published 200 peer reviewed papers. I've served as a uh, reviewer for the major journals. I've served as an examiner for the American Board of OBGYN. I've served as a board of directors for the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine for three or four years at the turn of the century. So, uh, you know, I, I, I've been around, I, I've been around the block and, and I know that I had ample opportunity to take um, funds, support from the pharmaceutical company or from any commercial industry. I never did it. I never took one dime because it's dirty, it's rotten. Uh, it's the antithesis of science. Um, this is uh, Ashim Maholtra. We talked about him. I, uh, you know, the just a, a brilliant young man. Uh, I was on with uh, Charles Coves, the uh, over in London or Australia, the uh, uh, about a week ago, and and their large um, network, and we were talking about this. And I had one of the doctors from Ireland, um, you know, because I gave this guy a lot of kudos. Um, because he, he, he performed an academic maneuver. He was a high profile figure over in the UK, really handsome young man. He must be in his thirties. And um, he was, they put him all over TV. When you see his face, you'll understand why they did. And he was hard pushing the, vac the vaccine. And now he's come out totally against it. And, and so this guy deserves to be knighted. So, so I knighted him for what it means from the United States of America. Um, and one of, the doc, one of the docs from Ireland, um, he got really upset um, at, at, uh, at us putting praise on this guy because this guy was, this poor guy, his life was destroyed by physicians like that who literally took his livelihood away and um, took his passion away. And he can't function now as professionally. And he was very angry and projected a lot of anger. And, and I, I guess what I would say to us is that, you know, we, we, we can't do that. And, and I know it's painful. We've had a lot of people attack us, but we have to overcome with love and, and with kindness. Uh, we can't let our hearts grow cold, okay? I mean, you know, you guys all know the stories of the Bible, you know, you leave 99 sheep to get the lost one and then you have a party for them when you find them. It's, you know, that's the thing here. To for somebody to do something that brave, um, we we can't have them, you know, torture them and beat them up. 
look at, I used to push vaccines. I, my eyes weren't open until 2010. So, you know, I, I perpetrated, uh, you know, I thought I was doing the right thing, but we have to ingratiate these people to come over with logic and, and not, not, not hurt them. Um, this is, I, before I go into this study, th there is some new information here. You know, the V-safe data, Paul and um, Pierre, what, what do you guys know about the V-safe data? Do you know that, that it was um, Dell Bigtree sued the CDC twice and finally got the, the V-safe data released and he's posted it on his website. And I put a call out today, anybody that you know can help me sort through all that data, there's 10 million cases. And I can guarantee you that that V-safe system of the CDC, that's what Shimaba Kuro used. It's manipulated, it's auto-populated and, and it's not accurate. And you know, you um, you know, I just have some. I, I reviewed the CHD stuff that reviewed this VSafe data. Listen to this: ten million VSafe uh, participants collected between December fourteenth, twenty twenty, and July thirty first, twenty twenty two. Three point three five million VSafe users reported one or more adverse events. Let that sink in. That's a third of the patients. Over 4 million of the symptoms reported were classified as being severe. That's 40%. More than 782,000 individuals, uh, about 1%, three quarters of a percent, 0.75%, experienced a health event that required medical attention, ER intervention, hospitalization. A significant higher number of those women reported adverse events. The VSAFE data shows 33,000 symptoms were reported for approximately 13,000 infants aged two years or younger. And according to ICANN, the VSAFE data only included less than 4% of all people that received the vaccine. So it's, and, and they will not respond. They tried to block it. They tried to say, oh, you can't have it because it's a HIPAA violation. Don't you love it the way they set up laws and then they use them for roadblocks to obfuscate truth tellers. I, I, you know, the HIPAA never makes any sense to me. It never has, never will. Um, that was a ploy, it is a ploy uh, in my opinion. I'm, there are a lot of brilliant doctors out there that will disagree with me and I respect that. The important thing is the safe data. Okay, you got a phone app. Let, let me ask you this. What, the patient drops over dead, or her phone's locked. Who, who's going to respond to that? Is she going to respond to that? You know, six feet under the ground, or you know, just take another obvious example. You know, look at the title. It's like the title of that article I just showed you. Wait a minute. Why did we call this V safe vaccine safe? That's really inappropriate. It's not safe. Why don't we call it V investigation or VRX or VDX? Or how about be more honest, V unsafe? Why don't we use that V unsafe? No, this is purposefully pushed out. The whole narrative bought off with tens of billions of dollars to every segment of our society. I, I want to get off that bandwagon there. It's uh, I don't want to get my... I get it, Jim. I get it. 
So we have a lot of questions, by the way, from our people who want to know what to do about this information, which is pretty startling. And a lot of them, you want to know, you know, uh, what a, a should a vaccinated breastfeeding mother stop breastfeeding and shift a baby formula or continue breastfeeding and do some kind of detoxing at the same time? What Jim, do you say to people? Jim, is it okay? You want to switch to questions? Because uh, the, the stuff that you presented so far is is alarming. Sure. Um, we I can mean, switch to questions. We're all aware of the, the, the terrible data. Before we do that, <clears throat> I'm just going to show a few slides, if that's okay. So, Jim, if you can stop yeah. sharing, um, I'm going yeah. to try to share. How come I can't see? Oh, there we go. Share screen. All right, give me a second. Um, uh, where are we? Okay, can you guys see my screen? Yes. Yeah. So. Jim, you know, you've presented data and, and you and I have talked and I, I've followed the data somewhat on just, and we also know about the, just the massive Facebook groups of, of women talking about dysmenorrhea, which is, you know, problems with their cycles, menorrhagia, amenorrhea, missing periods, heavy bleeding. Um, and then when we hear about the breastfeeding you know, we we know, and and also from the reproductive toxicity data, and, and we know that these vaccines are just absolutely toxic to the rep reproductive system. And so, is it a coincidence? And I'm just going to run through a bunch of slides because ultimately, if these really are a problem with the reproductive system, you're going to see it in birth rates, and. Perhaps it's a coincidence and someone can come up with another compelling variable that I'm overlooking, but I will just cruise through a bunch of slides. Okay. Germany, quarter one, 2022, right? And again, I don't have it timed exactly when they ramped up. I know that in um, February of 2021, they were about 5% vaccinated. By March or April, which would be nine months before the first quarter, they were up to 20% vaccinated. And if you look at these numbers, live births in first quarter, right? I mean, COVID started in 2020. You know, there were lockdowns there. 2021, we had all these waves of Delta, you know, a lot of deaths. But you see this massive drop in the first quarter of 2022. Again, approximately timed nine months from the ramping up of these vaccine campaigns. Germany, Switzerland, boom. First quarter, the first four months, you see numbers you haven't seen in years. And they're really sudden and dramatic. I mean, we know there's variability in birth rates uh, every month throughout the year because they're seasonal and you know, obviously human populational behavior, but these are absolutely unprecedented, a 14% reduction in one quarter. Gee, I wonder what happened nine months prior. United Kingdom, same thing. Look at that quarter, 9.4% drop. And you don't see those drops quarter to quarter typically. Um, if you look at month to month, you'll see that they start dropping right? August of 2021, or really September of 2021, 
drop, 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 and all the way down to February 2022. Keeps dropping. Uh, Spain, same trend. I mean, I, I think I can do this all day with many countries around the world. I mean, but look at the numbers. Look at the numbers just in the month of March compared to prior years. Yes, they have been decreasing, but these are massive drops suddenly when you compare same month to prior years. Netherlands, same thing, big drops in the quarter. You, everywhere you look, the quarter one of 2022 is less than prior. Taiwan, 2020, uh, 22.3% drop compared to one year prior in the first quarter. That is a massive change in birth rates. Norway, 16%. Sweden, 10%. And then we had Juan, which is one of, you know, he, he's done so much great uh, data analysis for us on numerous different issues uh, around COVID. He went to the United Nations Statistical Division and he mapped out the data. He just started looking at countries. And this is how he presents it. Take a look at this. Remember the colors. Orange is 2021. Yellow is 2020. Look at 2022, right? Just up until June. And those are immense decreases. If you look at 2020 and 2021 compared to prior years, yes, they're lower somewhat, but you don't see these kind of changes in Pierre, Pierre, what, uh, wh wh where is that from? I can't see the top of that slide. Is this worldwide or a national company? This is Bulgaria. I, I, can you not see my slides fully? No, not the top of it. It's cut the off. That's really? Bulgaria. Okay. Well, let me do this. Is that better? Yes, I got uh, it. Okay. All right. So I won't do full screen. I'll just do like uh slide. So uh, yeah, anyway, this is United Nations Statistical Division. This is Bulgaria. Boom. 2022, not looking good. Um, uh, uh, Czech Republic, same thing. Look at that January to March compared to, and then remember the orange is 2021 um, and the yellow is 2020. So look at the change from 2021. It's a massive change from year to year. When you look at the changes from all of those prior years map, they kind of run pretty tight, don't they? But when you look at 2022 compared to 2021, that is a, you do not see any year-to-year -year drop that looks like that. So something happened in 2021 to cause this massive drop of birth rates. Estonia, Germany. Again, more important is look at 2021. Look at that massive drop between one year and another. Hungary. Latvia, Portugal, Moldova. Now, Moldova is interesting because it's not that different than 2021. And also, I mean, Moldova, they also didn't have a lot of vaccinations. You know, Watch Me said they only had about 30% of the population vaccinated. So this is kind of interesting because you don't see a big change from 2021. Um, here you have uh, the Russian Federation. Sweden, which we've talked about, big change. Um, and so, I mean, in numerous countries around the world, you keep seeing changes in birth rates. And, and so, Jim, as an obstetrician, you know, you, you, we've already, you know, you talked about reproductive toxicity. We've talked about the bearing of adverse event data. We've talked about the ludicrous promoting 
of a novel medical intervention to pregnant women all around the world. And now we're looking at data of dropping birth weights around the world. It, we, we, it should be unsurprising. Jim, before we go to questions, maybe in like two minutes, what do you have on babies being born? Are we seeing more congenital abnormalities, low birth weights, uh, more admissions to the uh, neonatal intensive care unit? Like, what's it look like on the ground? It, it looks like uh, exactly what we showed in our randomized, uh, I'm sorry, it's not randomized, it's a retrospective cohort using the various database uh, between January 1st, 1998 and um, June tw uh, 30th, 2022. So we, we, we chose those dates because that's when we started pushing the influenza vaccine in, in pregnancy in 1997, and then the first calendar year was January 1st, 1998. So we have uh, 284 months of influenza vaccine data in pregnancy, and then we have 18 months of COVID-19 vaccine data in pregnancy. Horrible, unbelievable. Uh, you know, we have a massive increase in miscarriage. We have a massive increase in fetal karyotypic, fetal chromosomal abnormalities, oh, which I suspected, and that's why I looked at it, because of the Pfizer uh, data. We massive increase in cystic hygroma, which is a specific uh, first, second trimester um, anomaly. We have a significant increase in fetal cardiac malformation, fetal cardiac abnormalities as a whole, fetal cardiac arrhythmia, fetal cardiac arrest, severe increase in intrauterine growth restriction, intrauterine growth restriction, a severe increase in abnormal fetal testing. We test using a biophysical parameter of, of two points of five variables. Four of them are ultrasound and one of them is the NST or the fetal heart rate tracing strip for 30 minutes. Substantial increase in fetal vascular malperfusion as uh, assessed by uh, sophisticated Doppler velocimetry and color flow, uh, substantial increase in placental thrombosis, no surprise to Paul or Pierre, and a substantial increase in fetal death. So yes, uh, all across the world, the rates of uh, birth rates are decreased by around 10%. And, and let me just remind our audience, as, as Dr. Corey remarked uh, brilliantly, um, eloquently, this is a major thing. A 10% increase, that's a three sigma event. A three sigma event. That means it's three standard deviations above the norm. That is a one in 200 year event. One in 200 year black swan event. And what I'd like to do, man, I'm so impressed with your slide prepare. I'd love a copy of those slides. And what what we what I'd like to do is, uh, and I'm in the process, I like, and I'd love to have you guys uh, uh, develop a model. It's very easy to do with a statistical Monte Carlo simulation. And we take a conservative estimate and see what the world population, do it modeling for 10 years and assume that there's a 10% decrease in birth rate and a 10% increase in all-cause mortality. This is an extremely effective vaccine for depopulation. 
I was about to say, you're not saying the word, Jim, and I know you're heading there. Not that, you know, and you know, it's so weird. I'm just going to be open and honest here. When I write and I try to uncover the fraud, I just keep placing the blame on pharma and money. Although I know it's not just that. <laughs> and the reason why I do that is because I'm trying to just be data driven and I, I try to, I, I want to be credible and understood. And, and we know the way that where things are perceived. And when you start to bring up notions that are not adopted and not believed in, people find you uncredible. So, but every time I blame pharma, I, I actually substitute pharma for all of those things, uh, depopulationists and all that. But, but you know, whether you believe that or not, you can't argue with some of the data that I've showed. And, and some of the things that you're talking about, we're looking at data that literally is going to result in a reduction of the population. And, and even worse, not only reduction of the population, but what you just said is those children who are successfully born sound like they're going to be rather sickly. Yeah, uh, the ones that are born. Um, and again, we talked about this before. The reaction of the vaccine is very idiosyncratic um, for whatever reason you want to say. but Because some are placebos, Jim. Some people just you know sail through those vaccines and some are super toxic, mm -hmm. right? Placebos are yeah. just altered horrible production uh, production uh, mechanisms, which they you know that was totally bypassed. There's there's no, I mean, we we have whistleblowers that have proven that Brooke Jackson and many others. Yep. Yeah, should we try to get to a few questions? Sure. Uh, sure. And they deal with this too. Some of them, I mean, I, I asked one before about the, the breastfeeding, which is should a vaccinated mother stop breastfeeding? Are, are they better to go to formula or should they continue breastfeeding and then try to detox? If, answer that and then we'll come back to the issue you were just talking about. I'm so I, glad I'm I don't have to answer that question and Jim does. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not comfortable with the vaccine and breastfeeding. I, you know, I, I, there are, uh, you know, when you look at the breastfeeding data, and I want to give a shout out to Dr. Naomi Wolf of the uh, Daily uh, Cloud, the Cloud Strike and, and War Room. She's done an amazing job. She's an amazing human being, uh, and um, she she has a whole team. And you know, if you look at what she has um, published, it's from Pfizer's own data. There was a ten percent risk to newborns who were breastfeeding from the and, and vaccinated while breastfeeding. And you know, we're all aware of there's there are deaths that I'm absolutely 100 percent convinced. There is a death of a toddler, a five-month-old beautiful baby who is growing beautifully, way above the milestones. And at five months, I mean gaining weight, fat, beautiful, gorgeous uh baby boy. And mom got the shot. Her first breastfeed after the shot was the next day. And the baby immediately had a reaction, became inconsolable, crying, uh, febrile, upset, totally lost uh, his character, very ill, taken to the hospital, and is dead within 48 hours from thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura a well-known complication of vaccine. You know, I've reviewed uh, almost 2000 abstracts that have uh, uh, peer reviewed papers that are published on adverse reactions after the vaccine. There's over 2000 of them now and a huge proportion of them 
our vaccine-associated thrombotic thrombocytopenia purpura Jim, or many other autoimmune diseases. Jim, do you think, because there's that one study of mRNA and breast milk, do you think that was the mRNA that triggered that process or was it spike protein? I, it'd be total conjecture, but yeah. it does meet Bradford Hill criteria of causality. You and I both know that. Okay. We have, you know, here's a question. If a woman had two vaccines over a year ago and then stopped boosters, if she now gets pregnant a year later, is she still at risk for contaminated breast milk and other and or abnormalities in the fetus? We, we don't know, but I would be very encouraging to her. You know, she's done all the right things perfectly. You know, I, I don't want to tout our own uh, bandwagon here, but FLCCC has incredible protocols for vaccine injury. Um, and, and they have been, you know, kind enough to, you know, let, let me look at some of those obstetrically um, and gynecologically, which, which I was just honored to be involved with. But I think that they're excellent protocols. I what I'm doing is I am encouraging, giving hope because I feel that the immune um, modulating drugs, immune enhancing drugs, um, the most important thing the patient already did. You're not taking any more vaccines. That's the most important thing. Yeah. Stop the vaccines. Stop the boosters. You know, get on some medications to enhance your immune function. You all know those vitamin D3, K2 cream ordered off Amazon is the best and most important. Vitamin C, you know, if, if you're having menstrual abnormalities and, and you've got the vaccines, I, I think that empiric courses of, of hydroxychloroquine and or ivermectin are really valuable. Um, vitamin C, very valuable. Zinc, very valuable. And any um, non-invasive energetics therapies are extraordinarily valuable and they're very safe. And, and this, in my this, experience, Jim, this is what wait, we would say. Betsy, hold yeah. on. I have a really quick question. Um, this follows Jim, yeah. have, have you, are you aware of any cases where you think a child got ill from being exposed to someone vaccinated who wasn't their mother? Like a true, what we think are these shedding events, which are ill-described, not addressed. Uh, we know them from clinical anecdotes, but do you know of any events where a child was physically proximate to someone recently vaccinated and became ill in a certain way that made you think it was a shedding event? Honestly, I don't have that data and I haven't seen that, but there's there's very little doubt in my mind that we will see that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was presented a case today of, of a healthy, I think it was an eight-month-old boy who was exposed and around someone recently vaccinated and became febrile with a rash and died eight days later. And the autopsy showed Kawasaki's disease. Now, I haven't seen the actual description of the autopsy or the report, but we know that no autopsy of a baby is going to show vaccine injury or the effects of a vaccine. So I'm just, that's I, I don't know. I was, that's, I just shedding. Wondered, that's shedding. I mean, it, the temporal association is what bothered me. It was like literally three days or four days before this illness developed and then eight days before death and the mother wasn't vaccinated, but there were family members that were. And so when I heard the temporal association, I I, I was extremely concerned. And then the fact that they die of Kawasaki's disease, which is pretty rare, and they weren't ill, they didn't have a viral syndrome before it. 
again, you can't prove anything, but it just bothered me. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that up. Peter, I want um, to add on to that. You know, it's very interesting that you bring that case up because, Pierre, the second case of a breastfeeding death in a vaccinated mother was Kawasaki disease. Officially, it was Kawasaki's disease. That's what the autopsy said. Or that was the diagnosis that they made. Is that right? Or was it autopsy? Um, It was made at autopsy. But what's important here is that this woman was vaccinated and it was months, it was uh, six or eight weeks after the vaccine and the the breastfeeding. And the other important is that it was described as a very atypical case of Kawasaki disease. Every time I hear atypical anything with these diagnoses that the system docs give, you know it's the vaccine. Everything's atypical about this. Right. You know, going back to the question that follows up on what you were saying before about we have a, we have a large population of people who took the vaccines, young women. Uh, and then here's one. OK, the woman got a second shot and not long after that got pregnant. So you the the the. The person is asking, what about the suggestions for anything specific on the vitamins to ensure that now that she's pregnant, that she doesn't have the problems? And of course, this deals with kind of what you were saying about the protocols that that Pierre has been using. Absolutely. So so let me make sure I understand the chronological sequence. Um, She got boosted. And then how long after did she conceive? Uh, just says not, she got the second shot, not long before getting pregnant is all I, all I know. Okay. Um, I would be really encouraging to her. Um, my preference would be to wait six months, uh, a little tincture of time, some, um, immune, um, uh, enhancing nutraceuticals and vitamins, um, and, and then get a tincture of time. But in this, and then if they're symptomatic, I, I would start ivermectin and or hydroxychloroquine. This lady, if if she's pregnant um, and she's symptomatic with vaccine injury, I, I would use hydroxychloroquine, you know, 400 milligrams uh, once a week. Um, and then I would just encourage her to, can I, the vitamin D3 and the K2 cream, one pump ordered off uh, on the skin, preferably where the sunlight gets you 10,000 units a day. It's much better than oral. And then the rest of the, the zinc, 50 milligrams a day, vitamin C, two grams a day. Um, and um, the, the, that's how I would approach it. Here's a question about the fetus of a pregnant vaccinated mother. Is, is the fetus at risk for abnormal brain development in utero? Yes. Yes. The, um, the vaccine... Uh, crosses the maternal placental fetal barrier. It also transgresses the fetal uh, blood brain barrier and it concentrates in the ovaries. But I, I, you know, we we hope and we pray for the best. We have a question. Could you explain the, is this topical vitamin D, this cream you're talking about? Yes, it's topical. It's, it's the most effective. Um, it is, uh, as you know, it's a steroid and it's highly, highly absorbed rapidly, much better than in the gut, number one. And number two, as you recall, um, Paul, 
Um, it, it is dihydroxylated. The vitamin D3 that you take orally, of course, does a first pass through the liver, but it needs to be dihydroxylated at the 125 positions hydroxylated in order to become the active form, which is 500 times more potent than vitamin uh, D3. So it's actively metabolized. So the, the skin um, is one of the only organs that can actually hydroxylate at that position. So um, it, it, you get a double whammy. It's rapidly absorbed, just like estrogen, just like any other steroid. Hey, Paul, estrogen. how come we don't know this? Well, we I know. Learning, I told yeah. you in the, in the protocols. We're learning, Pierre. So what is, is it uh, vitamin D3 or is it 25 or, or is it uh, which form of vitamin D is it? Um, it, it's vitamin D3 K2. So it's, um, it's the same stuff that you take in the pill. It's D3. It's an anti-D3. It needs to be hydroxylated at a 1 in 25 position. Same with the pill that you take. But this is absorbed more effectively. I can, um, if, if I can text somebody the link, you can show it on, online if you want. It's, it's, it's a little bit more expensive, but it's more effective. But Jim, it's more rapidly hydroxylated. So you'll go to D3 to the active form more quickly than when you take it through the gut, because that's like a, a week later before it becomes active. Right. Interesting. And then the sunlight is very important. I, I know you guys aren't big on the energetics, but the whole key of vitamin D3 on the skin, that's a huge in, inlet of energy with yep. the sun and the vitamin D3. We have a question about can a vaccinated man impact the fertility or reproduction of an unvaccinated woman by shedding the mRNA related spike or LNP, et cetera? What do you yes, know of they, that? Yes, they can. And they knew it before they rolled it out because it's in their internal documents. What's a woman to do? Um, again, you know, tincture time. Uh, don't take any more shots, um, and and take care of yourself. Eat well. Take the um, supplements and nutraceuticals that we talked about. Add the ivermectin and the hydroxychloroquine if there's symptoms. And then um, you know we gain more time from the man and the woman post injection. And you know, yeah, I, I but Jim, the, the partner is the one vaccinated, the male. Or I'm sorry, the the uh, individual who identifies as male or whatever it is nowadays. I can't follow. <laughs> yeah, okay. get your terminology correct. Yeah, I'm sorry. We'll you off the platform. <laughs> I try to inject a little humor every once in a while, but um, you know, the, the shedding from you know, and the thing is that that that's like the one um, issue. You know, we talk about it. We get a lot of questions. There is zero data on shedding. I have not seen one paper. I've not seen an experiment. I've not seen a study where, because it would be an interesting study to do. You know, I'd be really interested to see, like, you could get people recently vaccinated. You could measure uh, sweat glands, secretions, and and see what's in there. And, and But there's nothing. Do you know of any published literature that addresses this idea of shedding? Zero. Zero. Yeah, um, you know, and uh, we'll we're, probably get deplatformed for talking two, about it. Two weeks of uh, two weeks of meetings with uh, Ryan Corey and with Aga Wilson over in Stockholm and Tiffany Parado. We're putting uh, the 
you identified our priority for research and, and funding is the first things first. And what, what we need to do is we're getting endometrial biopsies and there's, Ryan can do them on specimens, you know, in wax. Yep. So he can stain, he can stain for all the spike proteins and he can sp uh, stain for the other uh, proteins that are coded for um, the vaccine mRNA. And he can code, he can stain for the actual mRNA molecule itself. Yep. So this is the order of priority. This is extraordinarily important that we get an idea of what is it that's being shed? How can we prevent it? So is it is it the the um, with with intercourse of course it it something is being passed? We are all theorizing that it's a spike protein. It probably is, but that's got to be proven. And yeah. we have to gain more information on the endometrial biopsies of what's causing this bleeding? What's causing the infertility? Is it the syncytion uh, autoantibody? Is it the microclotting of the endometrium causing the heavy bleeding? Is it a hormonal disruption at the level of the ovary? We don't know that. So we need placental specimens and endometrial specimens. And we're doing a pilot study. Um, and if anybody can help us out, please contact me. I want to end with one question from a scientist who is lonely and needs help. Listen to this. An embryologist from Finland with a nearly 20-year career working in fertility clinics wrote to say the following. When I still was working in the embryo laboratory, the proportion of abnormal or degenerated oocytes, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and embryos was bigger than ever before in my long career. I was very concerned, but since nobody shared my concerns, I quit my job. Do you think that the reason, whoops, it, it just skipped ahead, wait a minute. Um, all right, here we go. Sorry about that. Do you think, all right, that the reason could be the spike protein and or LNPs causing errors in embryogenesis and altered oocyte and or sperm gene expression. She also says, I would like to get connected to other people, embryologists or doctors who have had the same experience. I feel completely alone here in distant small Finland with nobody to discuss this with. Do you have any groups or Zoom meetings to suggest for people like me? Well, definitely um, FLCC is, is, yeah. is a place to be. Um, and my colleagues here are, they're very, very focused on, on all of the specialties. And they're especially really focused on, on um, our area of interest, my area of interest, your area of interest that you called in about. And um, please you know, feel free to contact me. You're absolutely right. Um, and, and you're not alone, listen, um, you have a whole world of people that are supporting you and that believe and know what you're doing is correct and what you've done is correct. Um, unfortunately, in the United States of America, you know, these embryology labs, now the IVF clinics, you know, all my colleagues with rare exception, and I, I will call out a few of them that are on my team, but, uh, but they're Christiane Northrup, incredible hero yeah. of obstetrics. Okay, she's on our wavelength and 
she's outspoken, but short of Christiane Northrup, I know of one or two others, but they can't even be exposed or they'll lose their jobs. Jim, um, Jim, it's literally in the entire country with this massive attack on reproductive uh, ability, on, on, on everything. It's literally you and Christiane. Literally two OB guys who have come out in public and called foul on this. I got to tell you, I've been screaming for months. Like, where are the OB guys? Because they have to see it. You said earlier, Jen, that you're an obstetrician. The gynecologists have to be deluged with all of their patients with menstrual irregularities. None of them want to speak up that in 2021 and 2022, suddenly uh, women who are post-menopause are starting to bleed, uh, uh, young women who are totally regular, suddenly missing their periods, suddenly women who had normal periods or have bleeding heavily. I mean, it, it. we know this. There was Facebook groups of many thousands of women. It's all suppressed. And there's so few who've spoken out. You're, you're that, so absolutely right. And that's why I want to say thank you, Jim, because literally it's so I, I can't I would think that that specialty should have produced the most, the most calling foul. And you, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to you know play a violin or anything, but, you know, I've lost all my friends. I, I've trained hundreds, if not a thousand or so uh, young obstetricians around this country. Um, I, I'm a relational person. I, I love, you know, um, I'm with my wife and, and uh, our friends, you know, we, we're deeply relational people. I've lost all my friends here. I'm all by myself. Uh, none of my colleagues, even babies that I've delivered, you know, who, who I've been very close with, I'm radioactive. I'm a pariah. I mean, I have leprosy. Nobody returns my calls. They hate me. They can't stand me. I'm not whining because I know what I'm doing is right. Nobody Jim, me. Jim, I, you know, I have not been in practice as long as you or Paul, but I was so close with my trainees. I used to be a program director. I trained fellows in my specialty. I mean, we worked such long hours, so close. I mean, I went, went, went to weddings of my trainees. Me too. Yeah. And now, literally since COVID, you know, I have like two trainees. And by the way, whenever they text me, like my heart swells because all of my like legion of trainees, crickets, crickets. Me too. Me too. It's sad. Um, and Paul has probably the, the biggest, you know, tree of trainees around the country. And Paul, how many of your former trainees that you were close to reach out to you? 80 on a daily basis, overwhelming number. What have we done wrong, Paul? Yeah, um, that was just a joke, yeah. No, it's radio Dangerous. silence. Radio silence. Dangerous to speak the truth. Um, yeah, okay, and I heard guys. One, Yeah, it's time to wrap it up. We have overshot by half an hour. Uh, obviously, this is a topic that everyone cares about deeply, and there's major concerns. Um, we will see you, however in a very short period of time at our conference. So it is time to say thank you. Thank you, James Thorpe. Well, I, lo I, I, love, <laughs> I love my family at FLCCC. I've never met any of you, but I love you all. And I can't Jim, wait. we're going to meet next week, baby. I'm, yeah. I can't wait to see right. you, man. Thank you. Bye-bye. That is right. And um, by the way, folks, just a few very short announcements. 
countdown. The countdown is coming. Let's see that slide. Um, our conference is only 10 days away. The countdown officially begins today. Dr. Thorpe, our wonderful guest from tonight, will also be a featured speaker at the conference. So sign up, join us. Those of you with medical degrees can get your CME credits for the sessions that you attend there. It's There's going to be a lot of wonderful medical and disturbing, unfortunately, but medical information about the treatment of these uh, uh, diseases. Anyway, uh, we could use your help, folks, in making more of these educational events possible. We have another slide to go there. Together, together we can bring hope, health, and healing to thousands more people around the world. So if you can make a gift today, we would be so grateful. And there is the link, flccc.net forward slash donate will help us educate the world on things that they really, really need to know. And another way you can help us to go shopping in our FLCCC store, you know, it's sweatshirt season now and in many parts of the world that is. So why not show the world your support for medical freedom with one of these great looks? Uh, that brings us to our nurses uh, who have been working people to thank behind the scenes. Uh, it is a perfect time to thank the four of them who were giving their time to answer so many of your questions tonight in Q&A. Scott Rogers, Samantha Hanks, Pamela Burnham, and especially Christina Moros, who is our CRNA clinical specialist. She orders the fun items on these uh, you know, on our store and uh, gathers our caring nurses together. So, Christina, did you have a lot of questions tonight? And uh, and tell me uh, all about the good stuff in the store. You've got a lot of items there for us. We answered um, more than half the questions. We had about 160. And yes, we have some really lovely sweatshirts and hats and mugs and all sorts of fun stuff in the store. So go shopping, support FLCCC, and get your swag. And make Should we mention that you, you designed most of it, Christina? I, we can. I'll take credit for that. <laughs> big big shout out to Christina. I have all your swag, man. I buy When I see a new uh, T-shirt design, I'm like, I got to get it. I'm always wearing FLCCC stuff. I just That's ordered a new hat fun. myself. I lost my, I lost my, um, my winter hat. <laughs> another, another one. There you go. There you uh, go. Well, finally... Uh, you know, about now, I'd normally be telling you all about this week's episode of Long Story Short with Dr. Bean, but there isn't going to be one this week or next week either because Dr. Bean, as well as many of us on the FLCCC team, are in full conference prep mode. So we are not going to be here. We'll be flying, many of us, and there won't be a Long Story Short either. We will miss you, but might we recommend using the time to catch up on some of the other great content that you might have missed, like uh, Dr. Merrick's High Wire interview, which was just superb. Um, and we will be back in two weeks after the conference. We're going to have great recap. All kinds of good information will be there. Um, and we will be telling you all about how to prevent and treat the mRNA diseases. Uh, we aim to foster more science-based health and healing. And here is what keeps us going. Roll the video. <laughs> 